You might be familiar with some of the Christian creeds that are that have been passed on to us down through history, the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed, really important documents that were written in response to different heresies through the years and uh, was very critical in helping the larger church, the global church, even down to today, uh, be sure that we know what it is that we believe. But I think the very first Christian creed that we have on record was very simple. It's in scripture and it was in response to one of the earliest persecutions of the church. But here's the statement. Jesus is Lord. Think about that. Jesus is Lord. Because if that is going to be true for you, it has implications for every single part of your life after that. Amen? Amen. Easy to amen, hard to live out. Right? Baited you right into that one. But it was the Holy Roman Empire that had what they called a loyalty oath, where you would be dragged in as a Christian and given an opportunity to not be persecuted. And so they would drag you in before some royal official, and you would be asked to declare that Kaiser Kurias, in other words, Caesar is Lord. That was the loyalty oath that you were asked to declare. And if you could declare that, you could go on your way and all would be well. It would be fine. But the early Christian church in the first century, though quite civilly obedient, if you look at the history, balked at that statement, Kaiser Kurios, because it was a declaration that they could not make. That they could not make. And so they would say in response to that, Jesus ho Kurias. Jesus is Lord. And if Jesus is Lord, I want you to think about how that affects your time. How does that affect our pace of life if Jesus truly is Lord? Because think about it, from creation, from the beginning of who we are and everything that we see, the Bible says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then it says... That after six days of working and creating, that it was on the seventh day that God, what? He rested. God rested. If anybody didn't need a rest, come on, it was God, right? But that is the pace of sacred time. If we're created in the image of God, and oftentimes we apply that to human dignity and a ton of other things, and those are true, I think we oftentimes in our own culture leave out 
the part where God himself, after working and creating, rested. We're not good at that. So sacred time versus secular time is a real part of the spiritual warfare that's happening all around you. Remember the quote I shared in the very first week of this series that if, I think it was Corey Tenboom who said that if Satan can't get you to sin, he'll just make you what? Busy, right? Because this is part of who we are as followers of Jesus. And so it's entirely countercultural to do, I hope you know this, what you're doing right now. I mean, in fact, there's a lot of this culture in this world that would think you were actually quite weird to come sit there and listen to me. (laughs) You might be weird sitting here listening to me. That's fine. I'm okay with that. But secular time is always inviting you to speed up. And I think we've built that case over the past few weeks to take advantage of these endless opportunities that are in front of you. And yet as we chase these endless opportunities, we find ourselves increasingly less peaceful, less satisfied, and more stressed out and depressed than ever. Why? Because we were created to move in pace with sacred time, not secular time. We're created in God's image, and God's image values work and rest. Work and rest. St. Augustine wrote in his amazing work, The City of God, that the highest good in this life is peace. To be at peace. That if you're at peace, there's very little else that can disrupt your soul. Circumstances can change for sure. We know that in the blink of an eye. In the span of a month, the whole world can go indoors, right? Do you remember that? (laughs) However, peace doesn't have to. Peace doesn't have to. Maybe it seems odd to you that I would put time into a sacred versus secular category. And I would totally get that. But think about it. Isn't it true in your actual life experience, that time and pace of life affects your spirituality. Because at the end of the day, what you love, you have time for. Right? Like, I love my kids. I, I don't, I'm not like, sorry, dude, can't feed you today. I don't have time. No, no, I love my kids. So we make time to feed our kids. Would there be other things we could do? Of course. But it doesn't even make sense because they're my kids. You know, like if you're in college and you have a final and you just decide you're not going to take it because you're busy, how's that going to go? Not well. You will not pass the class. And they're not going to care that you didn't have time. Right? So... We actually do understand this concept of we have time for what we want to have time for. Even the secular world, 
admits that its relationship to time is broken. A recent Atlantic article written back in October stirred up this question. What makes a relationship meaningful? Right, Because that's ultimately what we're talking about, right? The pace of love. Where Jesus said, you need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. That that's like the whole thing. And so we've been talking about that. And so what makes a relationship meaningful? Again, secular article written in the Atlantic back in October. Because we're speeding up time. We're, we race past the speed of love. And so... Uh, In this article, it's mentioned that a British psychologist with the last name of Dunbar suggests that we can only have 150 friends in total. Like in your in your in your whole life, like all your brain is wired to handle is 150 people like that's it. And then he suggests that within those 150, that there's only 15 that can truly know you that can truly be a close friend to you. So really, 150 people you know, 15 people who you really know. Think about that. It would have been laughable 50 years ago to think that you could have thousands of, come on, friends. You know what I'm talking about? Do I need to spell that out for you? Social media of your choice. But most of us, we have all the choices. (laughs) We keep all the choices, right? And so what makes a relationship meaningful is, you guessed it, time. But you knew that, right? (laughs) I didn't need to build that case because you and I, we know that. And yet it's surrendering to who's going to be Lord of your life. And I am not preaching at you today. I'm sitting right there listening. Because at the end of the day, who is Lord of your life determines how you spend your time. I love the, I love the um, story, and I've heard it in a lot of different places, but that most of life is summed up Right? We look at a, a gravestone and we see a beginning date and an end date, and then what's in the middle? A dash. Right? I'm sure you've heard this example, but your life is summed up in how you spend your dash. It's a great way to think about it because it all goes back to time. And so often we are in a hurry. And again, I'm not suggesting that you weren't created for work. You are. Work and rest, you are. And so where does the church fit into this predicament? What does this, how do we together fit into that predicament of time? What I want to suggest to you is that the church, the gathered body of Christ, is the keeper of sacred time. We have an objective together to join in the gathered fullness of time, right? Don't you love that Christmas season where you come and you read that it was in the fullness of time that Jesus came, 
right? Like, what does it look like to experience the fullness of time? Well, it's peace, right? Because what did Jesus bring when he came to earth? Peace. Peace has come to earth. And so as we point ourselves that way, and as we get ready for Advent season, this is a strategic and important decision that you would make. This season, who will actually be Lord of my life? Because it affects everything. Everything. And so last week I began to suggest that you would orient your life around sacred time. Our Sunday gathering as time goes on, will become increasingly strange. It will. And I love that. I love that. Right? I said a few weeks ago, I want every time you come into this place for it to be starkly different than every other place you go during the week. Why? Because this is what God had in mind when he said he would bring heaven on earth. Right? that his kingdom would come on earth as is in heaven. And not what I'm doing to you right now. (laughs) Your relationships with each other. Because this is a pause in time for us to unhurry at the beginning of a week. But this is not your whole life. Your whole life is going to begin happening when you walk out of here. And who you choose to do that with makes a huge difference and the outcome and pace and peace of your life. And so what I want you to see this morning from one passage of Scripture is that you need a church family with God's presence and power, not secular prowess. I'm going to say that again because I think it's incredibly important because there's a temptation for us today as a body, as a community, to chase influence in the secular prowess of time to join that rat race so that when you come into this place you might feel like we're winning and i want to suggest that god's plan for his church is not that we would win but that we would lose you tracking with me That it would be in the giving up of your life for the sake of the people around you right now. That you would actually find your life. Because Jesus said the last shall be first and the first shall be last. You see, because we're tempted in our culture to be like those disciples arguing behind Jesus a little bit about who's the greatest and who's going to sit at his right hand. And we like to look back and laugh at that, but in reality, it's what we're doing. And I'm not talking about any one person of us, I'm talking about all of us. Like, it's the culture that we find ourselves in. And all throughout history, there's been a thing that separated God's church from the world. And didn't remove us from the world, but called us to be what? What does scripture say? Aliens and strangers in this present world. This is one of those areas that you would stop running and gather as God's people. As a light post inside of a city 
big deal. So let, let me read this to you. And, and this is going to, I'm going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So if you want to meet me there, it'll also be on the screen. But I want to frame this into the stream of wisdom, right? And so it might seem a little strange that I would go to this particular passage, but I think it's so critical because it comes back to this idea of who is Lord of your life and what is actually going to fill you. Because it goes back to this idea of being spiritual people or what scripture is going to call natural people. So look at this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. This is the Apostle Paul speaking, and he's writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So you're hearing the words of God through the personality and pen of Paul. And here's what he's writing to this church that he loves, these people that he loves. He says, when I came to you, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. That is secular wisdom. What are we wowed by in our culture? Lofty speech, amazing things, gaudy, good, entertaining things. And Paul says, I didn't come to you with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing. Come on, how much is nothing? It's nothing. That, that, that blows me away. I've, I've shared in weeks past, like it, it kind of like blows me away when the Bible uses like all-encompassing words, like nothing. That's important. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in trembling. This is not a great campaign speech. I'm weak. I'm afraid. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. That your faith Okay, here it is, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men in what I can get up here and say to you, but in the power of God. You do not need me to function as the body of Christ. I'm happy to be here, happy to be a part of it, and I hope to be a part of it for the rest of my life. And I hope you will too. But at the end of the day, This is about Jesus. It is about Jesus is Lord. Verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Powerful, powerful stuff, because there's this juxtaposition, there's this setting up of the wisdom of man and the wisdom of God. 
The wisdom of man, which is obvious and loud and prideful and taxing and stressful. Versus the wisdom of God, which, listen to the language here, is secret and hidden and mysterious and hopeful. If St. Augustine is correct, and I think that he is, then to find peace, we have to lean into the mystery of Christ more than we are the wisdom of man. And therein lies one of the greatest difficulties that Christians in this culture face. What does it look like in this pace of life to lean into the mystery of Christ more than the wisdom of man? I'm not sure I have that all figured out yet. (laughs) Because we're discipled over and over and over and over and over and week and week and week and day and day and day and scroll and scroll and scroll and watch and watch and watch and shop and shop and shop. It's just, it's all the time. What does that look like then? How does mystery in time work versus man's microwave content of life? You could, you could think about it this way. We live in an instant gratification culture. What I want, I need, I need to have. And then when Uber Eats forgets your order, oh, it's on. Where's my food? <laughs> right? Like, it's, it's the way we are. I don't speak from experience at all. I'm, you know. Listen to what 2 Peter 3.9 says. It'll be on the screen for you. The Lord, remember, Lord, very important. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. You're like, okay, good, he's fast. But look at the rest of the word. As some count slowness. But he's patient toward you. Is anybody glad that the Lord is patient toward you? Come on, what does it look like to be made in the image of God in in the pace of life? To be patient with you. For you to be patient with, come on somebody, me. (laughs) Not wishing that they should perish, but that all, how many? All should reach repentance. Just leave that verse up for a minute. Just think through the pace of love. The Lord. He's Lord over everything. He he could change anything in an instant. And be righteous in doing so. But what does it say? The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. So there's already a different lifestyle and pace to what we're doing. But he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Come on, Redeemer City Church. That's not cancel culture, is it? It's not. It's not. We're not rushing to make quick judgments. We're patient, wishing that all would reach repentance. 
not overreacting to humanity, not overreacting to sinners, acting like sinners. Because guess what? The man in the mirror, he's a sinner, she's a sinner. So we're not, we're not rushing to the judgment of those around us in our culture, but instead we're joining God in the renewal of all things. We're going out into the hedges and highways, compelling people that they might come in, being patient that we would hope that they would all reach repentance. You want to know why we don't do 800 activities at Redeemer City Church every month? Because we want you to join God where he's already working. In your neighborhood, at your office. You should be, if you can, on the neighborhood board. You should be in your business meetings. You should be everywhere that you already are as an agent of Christ. You are a special agent at all times on mission for Jesus in the world. If I bring you back here constantly, you can't be out there on mission for him. So next then, the Apostle Paul does a little bit of spiritual vision casting for us, right in verse 9. Look at what he says. But as it is written, come on, if you felt bad walking into church today, you're not going to walk feeling bad walking out. Listen to what he says. He says, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined. Very important phrase. The heart of man imagined. What God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Super important. So important that you hear that middle phrase. Because it's the key to knowing who's Lord of your life. What has the heart of you imagined as the greatest life you could live? Because that's the question, right? No eye has seen No ear has heard what God has prepared for him. But what's the key to that? (laughs) It's assuming that there's something in your heart that you've imagined as a good life. And Jesus wants you to know that his imagination is better than yours. But that's where that giving up your life so that you can find his is so critical. It's a lordship issue for all of us. God is after your heart. The slow, relational pace of wooing your soul into peace. And in human wisdom and timekeeping, it doesn't make sense. But I love that phrase there. But who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has known the mind of the Lord? Nobody, except those who have his spirit. So, the last thing I want to say is that the way to that kind of wisdom is through the spirit of God. 
We've been marching through this series saying the pace of life has to change. Not that you would stop working, but that you would join God where he's already working. Joining him in the renewal of all things, asking for his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven, knowing that you are his ambassador, is what scripture says. God making his appeal through you to the world. That's the plan. And so look at verse 12. It says this, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. And that's the question. What spirit is driving your life? What in your heart have you imagined as good for you? That we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. That's my job. Verse 13 is is my role as a teacher. Spiritual truths to spiritual people. And so the natural person, verse 14, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are folly to him. It's foolish. It's stupid. Because he is not able to understand them. Because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? Then an amazing low phrase. But we have the mind of Christ. So powerful. Spiritual people or secular people. It's very easy, if we're honest, to become secular people. Part of what we do in carving out this time, this day of rest, where we gather together to dwell in the presence of the Lord together, is to push back on the idea that we don't have any time. Because in reality, you have all of eternity to be in his presence. And so you have things you need to do today, tomorrow, so do I. And that's fine. It's actually, it's actually better than fine. It's good. You were created in Christ Jesus to do good work. But never outside of the peaceful relationship you have with the Holy Spirit. The natural man, without the Holy Spirit of God living within them, sees all of this as silly. Literally what the Bible says. They can't understand any of this. But the answer is because they're spiritual. They're spiritually discerned, the Bible says. And so I'm going to have the band come up and we're going to do what we've been doing at the end of every one of these is give you time to pray, to dwell in the presence of God. And I want you to do that around two specific questions and issues today. I want you to first ask yourself, am I natural or spiritual? Is Jesus actually Lord of my life? Because that's a critical question. And don't assume that he is. Because 
if some of this seems silly, if you're living in the flesh, it is. It really is. But if you're filled with the Spirit, it's not. It's critical every week to your spiritual flourishing. And so the second question is, if, you, if Jesus is Lord, if you can declare that, the question is, what in our life needs to adjust? Am I living as a spiritual person? Or am I living as a natural person? Another way to think about that is, is the mind of Christ in you? Would he choose the pace of life, the activities that we choose, if he were in my place? And only you can answer that. But I would encourage you to lean in to the mystery of Christ in this moment.